Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj here with a super special announcement before we get into today's episode. I started Beyond the Pearls podcast in May of 2021, and now, almost two years later, we're coming up to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe it. And you know what? I'm getting a little palpitations right here, a little, you know, SVT, superventricular tachycardia. I can't help it. I always drop these pearls, you know. Reaching the 100th episode is a huge milestone. And to celebrate it, I wanted to do something special, which is give away digital copies of my latest book. And what's the title? It's going to be Morning Report, the subspecialties, of course, Beyond the Pearls. And I made the little hand gesture, but you can't see it. So if you're hearing this, check the show notes and learn more about the contest and click the link to get entered. And you can be one of six winners to receive a copy of the book. Thank you all so much for listening. And now, let's get back to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond Pearls podcast. And I'm Dr. Raj, and I want to do a podcast by me today. Why is because, you know, I was thinking about the USMLE, and I was thinking about very important organs that I want to talk about that will appear on your board exams. And the organ that just jumped out to me this morning was the liver. And you're probably saying, why is he talking about the liver? I mean, isn't the heart one of the most important organs on the USMLE? And the answer is, of course, you definitely need to know the heart. Now, some of you are saying, well, isn't he a pulmonologist? Shouldn't his favorite organ be the lungs? And don't get me wrong, it still is, you know. But why do I love the liver so much for the board exams? It's because of one of my favorite I words. And what is that I word? Integrate. You know, and you you can't see it, but I made this fist integrate uh, because that's what the USMLE wants to do is take different topics and kind of blend them in together to make the perfect question. So when we talk about the liver, we could talk about physiology, we could talk about pathology, but they definitely love to integrate that with biochemistry. And when we talk about why is because when we talk about important biochemical things that can occur, such as glycolysis, gluconeogenesis, the TCA cycle, otherwise known as the Krebs cycle, the urea cycle, otherwise known as the orthanine cycle, they really all happen in the liver. And this is a great way to show that biochemistry is not just about memorizing, but about integrating it. And that's why I feel the liver is going to be a triple star high yield topic for the board exams. So Not only am I going to be talking about the liver, I wanted to break some stereotypes. And what is that? Anytime we talk about the liver, that we kind of mention about one thing, which is alcohol. Of course, there are other 
diseases out there that could affect the liver. You know what I mean? Um, and don't get me wrong. I think on a different podcast, I'm going to talk about hemochromatosis and Wilson's disease and alpha-1 antitrypsin and drug-induced liver injury. But I really want to focus on a very important thing that affects many people throughout the United States, throughout the world, which is alcoholism. And definitely alcoholic liver disease is going to be very, very, very important. So what is this stereotype I wanted to break is that we always feel that, you know, alcohol only affects the GI tract. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it definitely does. You know, if someone is drinking lots of alcohol and they say the buzzwords mid-epigastric pain that radiates to the back, what are you thinking about? pancreatitis, you know, and of course, you know, in the US and around the world, the two most common causes of pancreatitis are always going to be gallstone and of course, alcohol. If someone has the buzzword dyspepsia and has an alcoholic history, what do you worry about? Peptic ulcer disease, gastritis. Don't get me wrong, we always think about H. pylori. Once every thousand years, someone has <laughs> Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, another thing associated with the gastronoma course, Crohn's disease, a disease, you know, from the mouth all the way to the anus, and it can affect, you know, the stomach and the duodenum. But of course, alcohol definitely can cause ulcers in the stomach and the duodenum. It also can cause gastritis. And of course, alcohol in the liver, but alcohol can affect every single organ in the body. It can definitely affect the brain. It definitely can affect the heart. And going back to other important organs on the boards, you know, there's no way you're going to escape the USMLE without talking about a dilated cardiomyopathy. And one of the causes is alcohol. Of course, there's peripartum cardiomyopathy. There's vitamin deficiencies like thiamine, wet berry, berry. Maybe you're doing some traveling. You go to South America and get Chagas disease. But of course, you know, alcohol will be one of those causes of a dilated cardiomyopathy. But of course, on the boards, common things are common. You definitely want to think about the liver. You definitely want to think about alcoholic liver disease. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So I really feel one of the big things when we talk about alcoholic liver disease is all the different terminologies. Terminologies can be kind of confusing, can't they? So let's kind of break these down and go from there. So when we talk about liver injury, really secondary to alcohol use, you know, what can happen to the liver? Number one, you can get steatosis. Number two, you can get steatohepatitis. Number three, you can get some early scarring of the liver. We call that fibrosis. And then number four, you can get advanced scarring, which we use the terminology cirrhosis. And of course, if we're going to call it alcoholic liver disease. You do need to get that history of alcohol use and unfortunately abuse sometimes in certain cases to confirm that diagnosis of alcoholic liver disease. So let's break down some of these terms. So if someone comes in and they have, you know, steatosis, well, you know, another word for that is going to be fatty change, just fatty change. And in general, steatosis means an abnormal retention of fats, which are known as lipids, you know, within a cell or organ. So of course, one of the most common organs that develops steatosis is the liver because that's where all the lipid metabolism occurs. What a surprise, you know what I mean? So when we talk about, you know, steatosis, another name for that is fatty liver disease. And of course, not to get a little confusing, if you have fatty liver disease, but it's not secondary to alcohol, we call that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. Now, what is this steatohepatitis? 
Well, if you have fatty liver disease, I mean, you could be asymptomatic. You may have no signs and symptoms. But the minute you get some signs and symptoms, well, we call that steatohepatitis. So when we talk about other terminologies, I mean, you could have steatohepatitis from alcohol use, or you can get it from non-alcohol. And we call that NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And I think it's very important to really spend time and define these words because it does get kind of confusing. So let me take a step back and say something about, you know, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know, people have always asked, well, what can cause fatty liver disease besides alcohol? So things that really jump to mind is going to be things which are risk factors, being overweight, obesity, insulin resistance, having high blood sugars. Um, obviously, I'm kind of inferring type 2 diabetes. You know, I mentioned about uh, having high lipids in the body, especially triglycerides. You know, so these are all going to be things uh, that could be risk factors for developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I do want to mention a few more, obstructive sleep apnea polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, hypothyroidism. So, of course, there's other things that we always want to work up. And yes, we definitely word that NAFLD and NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, the main complication of both is will they develop fibrosis and hopefully they won't develop what? Cirrhosis. So, those are going to be some important things when we talk about terminology. So, what do I really want to really dive a little bit deeper into is something called alcoholic hepatitis. And it's a very distinct clinical syndrome. It's kind of a very severe form of steatohepatitis. And of course, to have alcoholic hepatitis, you need to have a background of chronic alcoholic liver disease. So how does this entity called alcoholic hepatitis, how does it present? Well, I think about four main things. Number one, fever, jaundice, tender hepatomegaly, and some leukocytosis. So if I think about the leukocytosis and the fevers, I'm wearing my ICU hat, what really jumps to mind? Sepsis. And trust me, you don't want to misdiagnose sepsis from alcoholic hepatitis or vice versa because the treatments are totally different. So, and is it possible to have both at the same time? Sure. So it is hard. And let me just say this. In general, when we talk about alcoholic hepatitis, it's very difficult to distinguish that from decompensated cirrhosis. That's a big conundrum. But how do we diagnose alcoholic hepatitis in general? Well, it's mainly clinically diagnosed. Now, do we need a biopsy to make the diagnosis? And the answer is, mm, not really. You really don't need that biopsy. Number one is because there is consequences when we start going around biopsying organs, especially the liver, which is very vascular. And of course, anytime you want to do an invasive procedure, the question always becomes, did it really change your management? So when it comes to alcoholic hepatitis, we really only biopsy it, the liver, when it's a diagnosis of uncertainty. That's the big thing. But if you make that clinical diagnosis of alcoholic hepatitis, the question now becomes, well, how severe is it? And Depending upon severity, you may want to initiate very specific treatments for alcoholic hepatitis. So severity is based upon a score. And I know everyone's rolling their eyes. What score do I have to memorize now? And it's called a MADRI score. 
And that means the imaginary discriminant function score. And how do you calculate it? I'm sorry, you have to memorize. It's 4.6 multiplied uh, by the prothrombin time minus the control prothrombin time. You take that value and you add it to total bilirubin. And of course, you got to memorize some numbers. If this MADRI score is above or equal to 32, then that's a pretty severe case of alcoholic hepatitis. And what are we going to start on those individuals? Steroids. Now, I'm going to go a little beyond the pearls here and say it's not just any steroid. Specifically, we think about a steroid called prednisolone. And why is that important? Because it doesn't require hepatic metabolism, unlike another steroid that we commonly use orally called prednisone. Okay. And let me just, I'm in the pearl giving mood right now. Let's talk about one more amazing pearl, which is what medication do we no longer recommend for alcoholic hepatitis? And the answer is pentoxifylene. You know, and even if the patient's not responding to steroids, we still don't give it. When we talk about pentoxifylene, studies have shown that it has no benefit at this time in these patients. So please remember that. So I really want to elaborate on these steroids. So when someone has alcoholic hepatitis, which is a clinical diagnosis, they were severe based on the MADRI score, that, you know, being on steroids has many, many side effects. And usual duration of therapy is almost 28 days of steroids. So what do we do to see if they're betting it? from the steroids is that we check something called the Lilly score. And uh-oh, I see everyone rolling their eyes again. Is there another score I have to memorize? And the answer is, I'm sorry. So when we talk about the Lilly score, well, after you calculate it, it tells you if they're responding or not responding. If the patient's not having a response, you stop the steroids. And we usually check this after seven days. And if it looks like they are responding, we continue for a 20-day day course. So already you're asking me, well, what's the number I need to memorize? So if the Lilly score is greater than or equal to 0.45, it means that, you know, they're probably not responding and you should stop the steroids at that time. So with all these things being said, well, how are they going to ask this in a question? So let's do this one. How about I make up a question right now? A 43-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for confusion and a one-week history of yellow skin, jaundice, and she consumes 12 beers daily. That's like two six-packs. Wow. Um, on exam, she's febrile at 101.3 Fahrenheit. Her blood pressure is 120 over 50. Pulse rate is 100. Respiratory rate is tachypnic at 24 breaths per minute and her sclera icteric, and her skin is jaundiced. She has tender hepatomegaly that is present. She has asterixis, probably implying some hepatic encephalopathy, and oriented to person only. And no source of infection has been identified, and the MADRI score is 35. Stop right there. So what is going on here? So they're mentioning the MADRI score in the vignette. Already they're hinting at, could this be alcoholic hepatitis? And then I think about it's alcoholic hepatitis is a clinical diagnosis. What are some of those buzzwords? Fevers. Does she have that? Yes. Does she have leukocytosis? Yes. That's what we're talking about. And how do I know that? Well, I kind of jumped ahead of myself. There is a, a WBC count in the vignette that shows that it's going to be elevated. 
Does she have jaundice? Does she have hepatic tenderness? All these things are just checking it off. So yes. And does she have a history of chronic alcohol use? The answer is yes. And with that MADRI score being above that cutoff, and what's the cutoff? 32. This sounds like severe, you know, alcoholic hepatitis. So they do an ultrasound of the right upper quadrant, shows hepatomegaly, minimal ascites. And because there's minimal ascites, you're probably not going to do a what? Paracentesis. It's probably not going to be what? SPP. And why in the question did they say no source of infection has been identified? Because you don't want to miss what? Sepsis. Because remember, there's a lot of overlap there. So there's no biliary stones because you don't have an obstructive jaundice. And there's no ductal dilatation. So the labs, I kind of jumped ahead of myself, gives you the leukocyte count of 15,000, which is elevated. You get the prothrombin time, the control time, so you can calculate the MADRI score. Alphosphatase is 200. The AST, ALT are 30 and 62, respectively. And total bilirubin is definitely elevated at 17. And my choices of the question are going to be, which of the following is the most appropriate management? Well, choice A is cefepime. Now, cefepime is a fourth-generation cephalosporin. And, you know, with the mental status issues, of course, I'm thinking hepatic encephalopathy in this patient with possible disease of the liver progressing from fibrosis to cirrhosis. But, I mean, cefepime wouldn't be my drug of choice if I was thinking about meningitis. That would be more like ceftriaxone plus or minus vancomycin, plus or minus ampicillin, especially if I suspect what? Listeria. When I think about SBP, which this patient only had minimal peritoneal fluid, you know, I don't think we need to jump to a fourth-generation cephalosporin. Three most common bacteria for SPP are always what? E. coli, Klebsiella, Streptneumo. And I would think about what? Third-generation cephalosporins there. I'd only pick cefepime if I was worried about what? Pseudomonas. So probably A is not going to be the answer. B, do we do a liver biopsy? Well, I don't think we're questioning that this is going to be alcoholic hepatitis. The classic quartet was going to be there. They gave you a discriminant in number, meaning the MADRI score that was elevated. I don't think biopsy would be the right answer here. C, pentoxifiline. Well, I already gave that spiel, <laughs> so I really wouldn't use pentoxifiline in this case. And finally, letter D was, do we give prednisolone, which is going to be the oral steroid that can be metabolized, that's not metabolized by what? The liver, which is going to be great. And D is going to be the right answer in this case. So what's going to be the take-home message from my little uh, spiel today. Well, number one, don't forget the manifestations of alcoholic hepatitis, which include fever, jaundice, tender hepatomegaly, and leukocytosis. Please remember that alcoholic hepatitis is mainly a clinical diagnosis. We want to determine severity based upon the MADRI discriminant function score. Anything greater than 32 is going to be severe. And to see if they're responding to the steroids, that you calculate what we call the least score. And if in that case that the least score is going to be greater than 0.45, they're not responding and you should stop those oral steroids. And remember, pentoxifiline is no longer a recommended treatment for alcoholic hepatitis. And in general, my last statement is going to be all patients with advanced alcoholic liver disease should be referred to hepatology for further management and consideration of liver transplant, regardless of duration of alcohol abstinence. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this 20,000 star high yield 
podcast for your USMLE board exams and your medical education. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.